Well, hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today we've got a great episode. Um, I have the distinction of interviewing the first person who interviewed Congressman George Santos. So she's coming on. And now I'm going to have a sister come on to talk about an issue that uh, I always took personal interest in as a legislator and still have an interest in it, even outside of uh, public service, dealing with recidivism and uh, reentry. And, you know, my background in, in politics, my background in law enforcement and all that, and especially on the correction side, that's always been something I've been concerned about and um, and always have been engaged in. So to have somebody who is doing that work and helping people that are formerly incarcerated uh fit back into society and address the challenges that they face uh, is always cool for me. And and I I always appreciate those individuals that do that work. Um, But before I get my first guest on, I guess I have to, I don't have to, but I'm going to say something about uh, the other controversy. Um, that's in Washington other than Congressman Santos. And that's this whole issue about President Biden and these documents they found. So, you know, a lot of us are dealing with it and everybody's getting to the apples and oranges part of it. But from a personal standpoint, it reminds me of when I was the chair of the Democratic Executive Committee in Hines County, Mississippi. And ironically, I was working for a black newspaper at the time, but uh, I was being interviewed as the county chair when the Clinton sex scandal broke. And, uh, you know, when it came out that he had lied about having the extramarital affair. I just remember first reaction and first thing I said to the reporter was disappointed, right? And they're not disappointed, you know, because I was a fan or all this kind of stuff, and you know, but I was disappointed Because it was, it, you know, so, you know, if you are a fan, if you are loyal to a team, you're not happy when team makes mistakes. You're not happy when an interception is thrown. You're not happy with a missed shot. You're not happy with penalties. You're not happy with whatever. You're just not happy when your team strikes out. You're not, it makes errors. It just, you're not happy. They're still your team still a fan, still believe in them, and you hope that they can win, but when they make mistakes, that disappoint you, right? 
And so that was kind of why I felt about President Clinton at that moment. And that's the way I'm kind of feeling about President Biden now. Even though, again, it's apples and oranges, and I deliberately use orange because orange represents the former president, Mr. Trump, right? That, you know, he, Mr. Trump, deliberately, for whatever reason, that's what the investigation is for. What is the reason he did it? But he deliberately took documents that he wasn't supposed to take. He deliberately put them in places where he could have access to him, not concerned about any security ramifications or whatever. And then tried to lie and dance around why he had them. Oh, I magically unclassified them, all that kind of stuff, right? Even when the folks at the Department of Archives and National Archives and the Library of Congress like, hey man, we need these documents back. He was like, no. And the FBI had to come get them. Right. Whereas we've got President Biden, who, when he was vice president, obviously, when they cleaned out the White House, seems as though that somebody or somebody's were careless in the hurry to clean out the White House and documents ended up at his think tank at the Penn Center or I think one document, at least one. Now, I've heard they might have found some more, but at least one document was found in the garage with his Corvette, right? It's just not a safe place for that document to be. Probably not a safe place for the Corvette to be either, but that's a whole nother conversation. Nonetheless, it's it's disappointing because just like back then, when Clinton went through his thing, that was what really revved up the machine on the conservative side that we deal with now, right? That was when Rush Limbaugh had a radio show and a TV show. That's when Fox News was just getting started. And the Wall Street Journal was becoming more conservative and the New York Post and even the Chicago Sun-Times. I mean, it was just, this was, that was the, the logs on the fire, right? The gasoline even to kind of build these networks up and create these conspiracies because they're already trying to conjure up conspiracy theories anyway. But then, you know, you lie, you cover up a lot of that and they just, they ate that up. Right. So, you know, fast forward today, those agencies are not only matured, but now they have offspring. We got OAN, we got Newsmax, we got all this stuff. And, you know, you went after, President Biden went after former President Trump for being careless with the documents. That was giving him the benefit of the doubt that he inadvertently had them, right? But we know that he took them. I mean, that's not the issue. <laughs> the issue is why did he take them? That's what the investigation is for. And so, you know, for him to say he was, and then he turned around and you were careless too, or somebody in your team was careless when you were vice president. And now you got documents where they're not supposed to be, right? So long-term, there's going to have to be some protocols that are going to have to be really, really followed from this point forward to make sure that what 
doesn't need to leave the White House doesn't leave the White House, period. Whether it's Biden, anybody else that serves as president from this point forward, there's got to be, and even though Biden was vice president at the time, still got to be a better way, better protocol to make sure that those documents don't leave. Period. In the meantime, now you've given fuel to the fire of the Kevin McCarthy era of Congress. And uh, Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor Greene, all the rest of them that are just going to be like, oh, impeach Biden. They already wanted to impeach Biden over his son's laptop. Now they oh, now they got a reason now. It's like, oh, well, you, you want to go after Trump about these documents? What about Biden? You know, and the way that they handled it, trying to piecemeal it. And, uh, you know, it just the drip, 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 instead of just coming out. And once the story was out there <clears throat> that President Biden had these documents, or these documents were found, regardless of whether he turned them in and that's how it got to be a story, whatever. At that point, let all the information out. Just let it out. Because the drip, drip, drip stuff makes it seem like it's a cover-up. The drip, drip, drip stuff makes it seem like there's something to hide. And if you want to make the comparison that you were being responsible once you found out that a mistake had been made as compared to the other person who deliberately and defiantly says those are his documents, then you should have been more transparent in releasing that information. I'm sitting here watching the young lady, the press secretary. Oh my God. You know, it's never a good job anyway, but you know, when you, you gotta make it easier for your team and for your brand to just be as transparent as you can. All the facts that you got, get them out there. So that way you minimize whatever damage these folks are going to do to you because they're, they're trying to do damage to you anyway. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, you can flip it around however you want to. The reality is, is that there needs to be better protocols. And when you're caught in that situation, you need to be transparent and give the documents back. <laughs> right? Just give them back. Uh, doesn't matter if you magically unclassify, give them back because they're not yours, right? So give President Biden credit for giving them back, but if we, we're still finding stuff. Anyway, I could go on about that, but I'm not going to because I have a guest. I have two. And so my first guest is Sky Ostriker. Sky Ostriker is the person who got the scoop. She was the first one to get the interview with Congressman Santos. Sky has spent 10 years working in and around government and politics in New York. 
pivoting to an unbiased interview platform during the pandemic to help alleviate or excuse me, elevate the human qualities of candidates seeking public office. She's currently the host of Political Personalities with Sky, a video series produced by City and State Media, and she is based in New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to present to you on this podcast, Miss Sky Ostrecker. All right, Sky Ostriker, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, I am honored to have you because you are one of the media darlings of 2023 already. <laughs> you you were able to get the interview first before anybody else with Congressman Santos. And so I said, well, since she got the first dig in it, let me pick her brain on this subject. But before we get into that, Tell me how you personally got involved in politics. So thanks, Eric, for the compliment. I actually was supposed to go to medical school. I went to University of Miami with a scholarship, and that was the plan. I studied chemistry, and the woman who was president of University of Miami was Donna Shalala, and she served in Bill Clinton's cabinet as his Secretary of Health and Human Services. And together at University of Miami, they taught a class about her time in that role and the night that she was President Clinton's designated survivor when he gave his State of the Union address. And she brought in President Clinton as a guest speaker to class to tell the story together. And it was in that moment that I said, forget medical school, I wanna do this. And at the time that was health policy. So I graduated college a year early. I came back home to Long Island, New York, and I did my master's in public health and a second master's in public policy at Stony Brook University. And during those courses, there were internships and fellowship opportunities for students to work in and around local government. So I worked at my local health department. Then I had an internship at News 12 Long Island, a broadcast station where I was assigned to cover a guy running for local office whose name was Tom Swazi. He was running for local office and then he made it into Congress. And then that's how my path started. And I spent the better part of the last 10 years working as a lobbyist on campaigns. I worked on the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. And then it was not until the pandemic. Mike Bloomberg dropped out on March 4th. And then a week later was the pandemic. So I was unemployed and locked inside. And that's when I just turned to my phone of all the different local elected officials that I have in my phone. And I said, what, what's going on? <laughs> and I recorded these different interviews and that's how this started. And now fast forward, we're almost three years later since March, 2020. And I've done 700 plus different interviews and, and the shows have evolved and iterated in different ways, but it's really getting to know the people behind the politics. And that's what it comes down to. Personality is everything. So the origin of political personalities with Sky was COVID. <laughs> <laughs> right, Eric, weren't there two different types of people during the pandemic? The ones who did Netflix and chill and wallowed. <laughs> and then there were people who their entrepreneurial spirit just burned inside of them to create something. And I was one of those people. <laughs> well, it's, it's ironic that since you were kind of going into the health field at a health issue got you 
to do this political show. So I think that, and, and that story with, with uh, Secretary Shalala and President Clinton, that's awesome. That's, that's, uh, that's the kind of stuff that legends are made of. So uh, I'm glad that you shared that. Um, So it's because of all of these um, connections that you had built in Albany uh, and New York city. uh, You, you, you were in the network, you were in the loop. So how did you get to talk to Santos as the Congressman? What was your relationship with him prior to the interview? So, you know, working in public affairs, especially when you're working as lobbyists or on campaigns, your whole job is coalition building. It, it's building relationships, building friendships, seeing how different businesses can benefit from this elected official or from their policies, or seeing how different nonprofits need to be elevated with the help from funding from elected officials. It's all like building a web and and a relationship building web. So that's how I had a lot of these relationships to do the show that I did first, which was called Life Before the Virus, and then three different iterations leading up to political personalities with Sky, where I spend time out in the field with elected officials learning about who they are and what makes them unique. And as you know, there aren't a lot of media platforms that allow for our public officials to speak candidly. Usually the news comes after them for a quote or a soundbite based on some tragedy in their district or some piece of legislation that they put forward. And you get them on camera for a couple of seconds and and that's what goes on TV or that's the quote that they use in the papers as opposed to getting to know why they think the way they do from the way they were raised, from their family values. So it's with that sentiment and, and attitude that I go out there and spend time connecting with our public officials. And it's not just elected officials now, it's different commissioners, deputy mayors, appointed officials too, and and different even executives getting to learn how they are the way they are. And um, so the relationship I built with George Santos, I first was connected with him when he was first running for Congress. And in my platform now and my platform before when I did Politics NY with Sky, I interviewed every single candidate who was running for office in 2021 because there was no way for them to get out the vote. There was no way for them to meet their constituents and vice versa because we were all locked inside during the pandemic. So how did anyone know who was running for office? So I did three questions in three minutes with every single candidate running for office. And it was later that year into 2022 when I connected with George and same thing, no judgment, just wanted to hear his story. So then when this New York Times piece broke, I reached out to him and I said, I'm sorry to read this, this, this slander piece about you. <laughs> what, what's going on? And then we stayed in touch and he said, you know, I'll give you the first on-camera interview. You've been so nice to me and so fair to me and the media is attacking me right now and I'd love to share my story with you. So that's how it happened from a relationship that I was able to build in a nonpartisan, non-judgmental way. And, you know, in my mind, just kind of doing some research of your background, I said, that sounds, that is exactly how I figured you did that because you had been seen and and he viewed you as somebody that could be trusted to, to be fair to him. And so naturally you got that as opposed to uh the new york times and all that stuff and and listening to the the times reporter at least the one that comes on camera uh uh, michael gold he'll he basically says we weren't even looking for anything like that we were just 
it was one little nugget we were and then poof all this happened so um i'm glad that he was able to 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 give you that moment um because it was very revealing i listened to it but since you directly interviewed him and of course you probably talked to him before and, and after off camera what what was your general takeaway about the interview your 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 gut of, on 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 what he was saying and how he came across i think that having hung out with him socially like i've seen him at a halloween party for example i was at the same halloween party as him in october I think that he's one of these people that are affable, gregarious. He, he talks a lot. And, you know, now we know maybe some of these are embellishments, right? About what, what he claims to have done and accomplished. But he's one of those people that people like listening to and, and like talking to because he seems like he's in a good mood and he has a lot to say. Um, so that's sort of what I think caught people off guard. And at the end of the day, he didn't do anything politically incorrect. He was never in office before. So if more people had paid attention to these personal details, these character traits ahead of time, because he won. I'm from that district. That's where I was born and raised is New York three on Long Island, the district that he you know, is elected into right now. People there voted for him because he had an R next to his name. They wanted a Republican. And I think as a whole, if, if everyone paid more attention to what I say, the characters behind the letters, the personalities behind the R or the D, where did he go to school? What religion is he? Where is his family from? You know, those details, then we wouldn't be in this situation if more people paid attention to those details ahead of time. So, like I said, I'd listened to it and you know, he, he listed off, especially at the very end, he listed off a whole litany of issues that he wanted to work on, which sounded, you know, as somebody that had, that had been elected before, it's like, okay, yeah, okay. He's making a point there. He's doing that. Okay. All right. So you, you were saying that people tended to vote for him because of the R, but do you, do you think also because of his personality that he's gregarious, as you say, and 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 somewhat affable, right? That mm -hmm. that played a role in him getting elected by, you know, voted to because you, you don't you only have so many people that are straight R's and so many people that are straight D's. You got a lot of swing voters independent. So do you think that played a part in why he was able to get the majority of the votes? I think that in this particular election, it really came down to party line. And yes, what you're saying is true. Mo I think most people feel that they are somewhere in the middle between Republican or Democrat. But I think that in New York, what happened was there was that whole issue of crime and Lee Zeldin pushing the envelope there. And he received a lot more votes than Kathy Hochul and the Democrats even thought he would get. And it was really because of, I think, the crime and public safety narrative that pushed more people to the right this cycle. And I think that that helped carry George through more than anything about him personally. I got you. Um, so having said that, why do you think the Nassau County Republican Party is now distancing, distancing themselves from the congressman? I mean, that press conference, 
I mean, you couldn't have scripted it in a in a movie about New York any better. The, the different people that came on, especially I forget who the, the 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 older gentleman, shorter gentleman was, but you know, he sounded he he was you know the the tough New Yorker. It's like, well, you know, he lied to me about being on the volleyball team. I mean, it was it was a it was a an epic moment on television. I've I've never seen anywhere really in politics anywhere in the country where it's like a whole county party association said yeah we don't like this guy why do you think that they decided to do that i think and you know better than i do as a former elected official that this is part of the game the party has to do certain things publicly in order to retain their base right now george is under the microscope I think maybe he's arguably the most famous person in America right now. You know, the memes, every, everyone's talking about him. I think the next thing that George does is he hosts Saturday Night Live. And I'll say that right now. That's the next move for him. But the party has to do the right by the people. George lied. We want him out. Like I talked to Congressman Richie Torres since this, who put forward the Santos Act, which stands for Stop Another Non-Truthful Office Seeker, which is the acronym for Santos. But he said, even though George is his colleague in Congress, he won't shake his hand. He won't work with him. I think the narrative is George lied and he shouldn't be in office. But the truth is there's no precedent for anything like this ever happening. So as far as what's legally incorrect, that's going to take right innocent until proven guilty. They have to go through this whole thing, subpoena, lawsuit. God knows how long that's going to take. He really could serve the whole two-year term. But I think that public figures have to come forward and say certain things in order to play into politics. And yes, the Nassau County GOP has come forward and denounced him. Um I'm trying to think if other counties have as well, but I think it's part of the party. You got to come forward and denounce, but some people won't. And the truth is, let's say the whole party denounces him. Then he could be in a unique position where he's not beholden to the party to get anything done. Then he's like a real loose cannon that can vote however he wants to vote, right? Right, and I think that's the way McCarthy is playing it because when he he looked at reporter dead in the eye and said, um, "What ex- what crime did he commit again?" So <laughs> you know, and and that's why I'm I'm looking at because the local folks uh, are basically saying his colleagues in New York and the and the, his own party in Nassau County because I think Queens County is the Queensboro is part of that district too, right? Yeah, but I don't think they've come forward to denounce him, right? Right. So it's like they've done that, these people, but not the national party. And right. and McCarthy, you know, and everybody said, well, McCarthy needs his vote, you know. But, you know, McCarthy needed Marjorie Taylor Greene's vote eventually, but he had to, you know, say, look, you can't say these things and I have to go along with what the speaker says and you might have to sit out on some of these committees. You can still vote on the floor, but you, you know, we, you gotta, you gotta be punished for what you said. Now, the question with Santos is, is lying about your background, lying about your resume, the equivalent of 
some of the other stuff that congressional people have done and they've been able to either stay in office, get reelected or definitely no party is having a press conference saying they need to step down. I mean, that's, that was, that was kind of my, my take on it is like, okay, well the local folks, but he won. Right. I mean, he, 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 it wasn't, was it, was it close? I can't even remember what the total was. Was was it close that he that he won by? As far as the points, I he won. He won by a significant margin yeah. in that district. And there are people in the district that I know who are proud to have voted for him, even now. And even Tom Swazi, he held that seat before George. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying, acknowledging that there are people in the district, his his former constituents, who do not want George to be removed for that seat. They voted for him. And again, some of these attitudes, right? Not just of Republicans, but of some people in general is like, the government is screwed up. If George was able to pull this over on the government, then more power to him. That's how some voters feel. Yeah, and that, and that's that was kind of, the next question was like, when you talk to people in the area, are you getting that sense that folks are like, well, you know, all politicians lie, so what's the big deal? As long as he does what he said he's going to do when he's elected, you know, so be it. That's part of what I hear. And the sad part of that narrative, it right? All politicians lie for, you know, let's give up is that this is how we're going to lose our democracy, especially with millennial voters, Gen Z voters. There are passionate ones. There are. There are passionate ones. But for people to walk away with that message, politicians lie, is really not a good thing for our country. So do you think that's the most detrimental thing about this whole Santos thing is pushing out that perception about politicians lying? Yes. That's what I think. This was covered by every single news publication, every single one. Even people who don't know anything about politics know about the George Santos story. And I think the takeaway message on a superficial level is politicians lie. And that, and then people say, well, that's why I don't vote, or that's why my vote doesn't matter, or that's why I'm not involved, or don't talk to me about politics. They lie. And I think that is the most detrimental long-term effect of something like this happening. So what do you, if you were, if you were advising Congressman Santos, if he hired you to be his media person, PR person, how would you guide him through this? How would you tell him, how can you fix this to, 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 to <laughs> gain that public trust back? I don't know if there is a way to fix it, to be honest. I think a mockery has been made of this person. And the only way to get around it, I think, is to lean into the lies. Like host SNL and let, and let the whole hour go by of everyone making fun of you. I don't know. I don't know. You can't get out of this, I don't think. I mean, unless he's going to apologize and say, look, I really screwed up here. I apologize for everything. And let's start over. But no one's going to like I don't think that'll fly either. So I think he just has to lean into the lies. Well, he, he did that on your show. He, he, he flat out apologized for it. Uh, and I asked a friend of mine, 
do you do you view him as a liar or just as an embellisher right i use a more colorful term and mm-hmm. uh you know that person said it was basically one and the same right but i i don't know if i i think he can get out of it i think huh. by doing what you suggested right if he if he leans into it um and then kind of, uh, you know, because I tweeted out, I said, you know, I look at him and I look at John Lovitz. You remember John Lovitz from Saturday Night Live? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they look similar. And I and I just said, so John Lovitz hasn't come on Saturday Night Live to do a George Santos impersonation at this point? Right, right, you know right. what I'm saying? I think that would be, it's something of that nature and then just and just start working on because because what the other folks have done when we criticize Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or Matt Getz or something like that, they just keep rolling. Right. They just do what they do. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And on the Democratic side, you can talk about Representative Omar or Maxine Waters and all that. They just keep doing what they do. I mean, Maxine Waters has embraced the auntie Maxine. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to tell you what I think and you deal with that. Uh, with Santos, I think if he if he can come up with some legislation yeah. based off that litany of stuff he talked about at the end of your interview, if he can just introduce a bill, one of those things. I mean, he did call <laughs> he called out Mayor Adams. Right. He said, hey, I want to work with you on this public safety, this crime thing. Right. It, to me, it seems like he can he can navigate his way out. Now the only, only concern I have with him is did he lie on the FEC form? Cause if he, if yeah, he, well, that, that, right. That's where this will turn into an actual, you know, illegal versus legal argument. It comes down to the finances, but what you're saying, yes, lean into the lies, become this notorious famous figure and then if he can produce some meaningful legislation, I think that would be great. The last I spoke to him, he said that he was going to be writing handwritten letters to everyone who supported him and invite them individually for personal White House tours. <laughs> well, okay. That that's pretty cool. We had a I had a real quick, I had a there was a congressman. He reminded me a whole lot of things. So there was a congressman, I grew up in Chicago. There was a congressman named Mel Reynolds. And Mel Reynolds before he got elected to Congress, he kept running against the incumbent, this guy named Gus Savage. And Gus had a radio show that came on every Sunday morning. He was a former city council person. He was an activist. He used to throw this massive Super Bowl Sunday party every year for, you know, the district. And Mel couldn't beat him. They redrew the lines. Mel couldn't beat him. Everything. Gus had the worst voting record of any congressman. I mean, literally like in the teens, because he, he basically said, if it ain't affecting black people, I'm not voting for it, right? And so <laughs> Gus would just do his thing. And so finally, the the time that Melvin finally beat him, the Saturday before the election, he had this press conference and he came with this big bandage on his head and it was a big red dot on the, on the bandage. And the news was talking about somebody had broken his office. And he said that he had the press conference, said he was attacked and yada, 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 and all that stuff. Well, somehow he pulled it off and he won. Uh-huh. 
and 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 so <laughs> he was in there when when President Clinton was in, and President Clinton was trying to push the NAFTA vote, and and Reynolds was one of the folks that was holding out. And the only way Reynolds changed his vote was that President Clinton said, hey, man, you want to take a picture in the White House Rose Garden? And he said, sure. Can I bring my wife? Yeah. So they took the picture and he voted for NAFTA. That's how NAFTA passed. <laughs> but, Mel- but And then, it, of course, he ended up in jail for fraud. And so he only uh-huh. served one term. He ended up in jail for fraud. And, and I think he died right after he got out of jail. So... There's always been colorful characters is what I'm trying to say. There's always yeah. been people that have done things. And when you said the White House, uh, you know, promising the White House tours, that's what triggered yeah. the Mel Reynolds thing. And then, yeah. the, and then the other thing, uh, the movie Distinguished Gentleman uh, mm-hmm. with Eddie Murphy, uh, where he was like, vote the name you know. That was the first thought that came in my mind. It was like, okay, well, you just voted for the name that you were comfortable with. But you kind of validated that. You said people voted for Republican. They were following that Zeldin wave and mm-hmm. Santos benefited from that. So um, I think it's going to be interesting. How do you think, how do you think this is all going to end? Do you think he's going to get reelected? Do you think he's going to serve at least one or two more terms? I mean, how do, how do you think this is going to end? Well, I think the two people that we can compare George to, really, um, let's say someone like Trump. Okay. Everyone was so upset, and we got to indict him, and he's got to go to jail. That That's not happening. Or Anna Delvey. That was the girl that came here to New York and, you know, created this whole lie of her foundation, and she got hundreds of millions of dollars. She went to jail, and now she's out of jail, but she's sticking with her story that she really is an heiress and had this foundation, and she's going to benefit people. I think the way the George Santos story ends, and again, he may serve the full two years, it will come down to these FEC filings and, and reporting financial disclosure, but the subpoena, the U.S. Attorney General's office, that could take a while. And maybe it ends with him in jail or maybe it doesn't. It depends on what comes down legally, but hopefully he can make good on him being elected. Otherwise, the 140 some odd thousand people of that district will suffer. Right. And it's going to be an interesting um, story to follow all the way through. Um, you had mentioned something in the interview about millennials and you kind of touched on it here. Um, how how important is that vote in in New York state as compared to other parts of the country and what what trend do you see them going well here in new york we have new york city with like eight or nine million people and i don't know the numbers but let's say most of them are millennials a huge chunk of them are millennials millennials are the biggest voting block right now we're all in positions i'm 33 i'm a millennial my, I have colleagues that are running companies, running nonprofit organizations that are in office themselves, that have their own families, that are that are homeowners, decision makers. And I think, and George is a millennial too. He's 34. And going back to what we were saying, if, if the takeaway message is politicians lie, that's why I'm not getting involved. 
you know, even with an, as involved as I am, most of my friends still sit out of voting, especially in local elections. So the importance of the millennial vote, I think, is, is pivotal here. And what we need to do, and I think the media has a large role to play in fanning the flames of partisanship instead of presenting neutrally what's happening. When you want to find out what's happening, it's really hard to decipher watching news to figure out what's exactly going on. And I think we are dividing our country and losing millennials in this process. And in order to pave a, I mean, there are other, like Andrew Yang has his forward party. Like there are other answers coming to the table. Um, ranked choice voting, other ways to try and neutralize the partisanship. But I think millennials have a voice in this conversation and, and we can't afford to lose them. Otherwise we'll lose our democracy based on the, the partisanship that we're seeing here. Well, I appreciate you contributing to educating folks um, and especially not just in your age group, but overall, because the premise of your show is a service that I wish they would do in Georgia. Uh, in Mississippi, it was the media was really, really friendly in Mississippi as far as getting people to know who the candidates were. They, they relished into that thing, but big areas like Illinois, Chicago, you know, Chicago and, and Georgia and Atlanta, not so much. So you being in New York and doing this is really, really vital work. So as part of what I do in my podcast, I give people a chance to shout out their work. So tell folks how to pay attention to your show, get in touch with you, all that kind of stuff. Sure. My show is called Political Personalities with Sky, and it's produced by City and State Media. I'm on Instagram as The Political Personality, and on Twitter as Sky Stats. And I'd love to take my show on the road one day, Eric, and come to different states because it's really important hearing the actual voices and stories of local leaders. And you know, you be all politics is local, but no one really knows who their local politicians are. So it's really important to have their voices heard because they're the ones that are, you know, they're working up the ladder and running this country and moving into positions of higher office and why not get to know them? Exactly. So hopefully you'll get that chance. I think you will. I think, I think, uh, as I said, your star is rising. Uh, and as, and as people pay attention to what you're doing, if not you, hopefully other people will, will, will take that model. So I appreciate that, Sky. Thank you so much. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right. And we are back. So, uh, my next guest is Tanane Jenkins. Tanane Jenkins is a recidivism strategist, a motivational reentry speaker, and a published author. In 2010, Tanane was charged with defrauding a financial institution and sentenced to two years prison 
and five years of probation. After release, Tanane worked in the logistics and tax industries before starting Everything I Am LLC, an organization that focuses on helping returning citizens and justice-involved individuals become successful in their second chance. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to present to you on this podcast, Ms. Tanane Jenkins. All right, Tanane Jenkins. How you doing, sister? You doing good? I am doing brilliantly. Thank you for asking so much. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, coming on and talking. So I'm going to do something a little different with you. And it's okay. kind of based off of your TED talk that you did. Um, because it was very, it was very inspiring. Those TED talks are not long, but mm-hmm. they, they seem to do a good job. They've never asked me to do it. So that tells you the quality that they expect right oh don't do that <laughs> but uh <laughs> but i but i do want to ask you because i had it phrased a different way but I'm, I'm gonna ask you this way okay what is the difference between j42433 and tenane jacob jenkins that is an excellent question j42433 was a broken woman I was lost. I was not confident. I was existing and not living. I was just going through the motions. And I was a recluse. I I hid away. To name Jacob Jenkins does not hide. And she makes a lot of noise. (laughs) She speaks up. She's confident. She knows who she is. She is uh, grounded. And she stands 10 toes down in any and everything she does. So as a follow-up to that, because you talk about why you were arrested, Mm -hmm. uh, the charge and all that. But the question I want to ask is, do you feel more complete now than you did before you got arrested? Because when when you say you were arrested, uh, you had a job and you were making about 60,000 a year. You were kind of, you know, you, you were doing okay, especially in, I guess it was in Florida where you were working. Yes. Yeah. So that, Jacksonville. Yeah. So mm-hmm. cost of living is a little cheaper in Jacksonville than it is in Atlanta. Much so, cheaper. So you were, you were doing okay, but yet and still you did something to try to get some extra money. Yes. So, What's the difference between that person and the person that you are now? What did you find that was missing back then that you have now? I found I found my enough. Back then, I didn't know what enough was. I didn't know what enough looked like. I was chasing something that I had not defined. So when you're chasing something that you don't know what it looks like or, or it smells like, all you're doing is chasing your tail. And you'll always be chasing because you don't know what the end looks like or in your mind, you don't know what the end looks like. So over the last few years, I was able to define what my enough looks like and what my enough is. 
And therefore, I'm not chasing my tail anymore. I, I understand once I get to a certain point, this is your enough. Now reach for another goal. And my enough come in the forms of goals. So once I attain this goal, that's my enough for that level of, of me. Then I create another goal and that will be the enough for that level of me. And it continues to cycle. But at least I have a definition of what enough looks like in my mind's eye. And, and back then, I didn't know if I didn't know I needed to define what enough was. I was just going through the motions then as well, just chasing my tail. So I'm going to get back to that point of how you got to knowing that you had enough. But mm-hmm. I want to get into some of your work first. Explain what the mission of Everything I Am LLC is. Everything I Am LLC is a confidence-boosting apparel line. That's what it started out as. And it was basically to, it was it is geared toward returning citizens and justice-involved individuals because we need a constant reminder. I believe everyone needs a constant reminder that they are more than enough or that they are enough or that they are someone or that they are everything they are, flaws and all. And when I created Everything I Am, I was in a dark, dark space and I did not feel like I was enough and I did not feel like I was everything. And so I created these t-shirts because I needed a constant reminder that I was more than enough. And in turn, it helped other individuals have that constant reminder as well. So I created it for me and in turn, it actually helped so many other people. Um, how can, how can we say as a society that we want people who have served their time to fully reintegrate when the system as designed takes away one's hope and self-identity? We can say it all day. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true. You know, when people are released from prison, people that do not know expect us to just thrive and succeed because we went to prison and you've been punished and you shouldn't want to do it again. That's not always the case. So in society, when when returning citizens have so many barriers that they face coming home, uh, access or no access to occupational licensing in certain areas, which would provide a living wage, and then you have the housing issue. I, I say all the time that I was sentenced to a second sentence. And that second sentence was to live below the poverty line. I was working seven days a week, not able to pay my rent. But I'm trying to do what, you know, I'm trying to be a good citizen. But when it's set up for us to be second class citizens, we are, we're ultimately set up to fail. So when society says, well, you know, don't get in trouble anymore. Absolutely. I'm going to do my best not to get in trouble anymore. However, when you're on probation as well, because I was I, I was sentenced to two years prison, five years of probation. My five years of probation ended up turning into 10 years of probation because I was violated probably a month or two prior to my my current term expiring because I couldn't pay my restitution because I didn't have any money. 
because I couldn't get a job because I'm a felon. So it's a lot of different barriers that are stacked up against us. And for, for society to say that we should be okay once we get out of prison, they don't know the laws that are in place or the policies that are in place that keep us from, from obtaining that level of success that they have in their mind we should obtain. We got, and, we, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and I and I say that there are, are about five different types of people. There are people that don't know, people that don't care, people that don't know to care, people that care and don't know, and then people that actually care. And we need more people that actually care. And then we need to educate those people that don't know. Then maybe they'll turn into people that actually care. Right. And and I'm going to get into the policy piece, too. But I did want to ask you, you talked about in the TED Talk, and you just kind of talked about it here, so it doesn't have to be long. But you you basically said that the the toughest part of your life was not when you were physically in the prison, but when you were released and trying to uh, do right. Yeah. Basically. And you kind of touched on it about the, the, the job and all that, but the, the other piece I guess is you couldn't at that time, could you could you get your rights restored to vote at that point? Had you no. right, so you couldn't vote. You you had to check that box on the on the application, mm-hmm. um, and and then of course you had to try to find housing, right? So yes. why do you think? And this will kind of segue into the policy discussion, but why do you think it is? so hard for people to connect the dots. Like you said, it's like it's lip service. You say you want people to be restored, but like you said, there's all these barriers. Why do you think that there are people who don't know or care, but don't know or don't care to know and can't connect those dots to see that you got to remove particular barriers if you want to have a society of people that have truly reformed and, and really want mm-hmm. to, and want to be contributors to society instead of, you know, being, being a burden or a ward of the state. Correct. Uh, the people that don't know, don't know because nobody has told them. That's, that's just the bottom line. That's like when you go to school, you don't know your ABCs until someone teaches you. So the people that don't know, they don't know because nobody has taught them. The people that don't care are those individuals that believe it does not affect them. So until it it affects your household or someone close to you, then you really don't care about it. You know, when I put it in perspective and I say, well, you know, you don't care, but it affects you more than you know. Because when returning citizens can't get access to certain things, then you see homeless people on the street begging for money. You see your taxpayers, you know, your dollars being funneled into these prisons to house these individuals that have barriers against them and they they 
keep going back and forth to prison because they can't do anything else. Then you have your neighborhoods that can be safer when you actually care about reentry and what's going on with the prison system and how they're pushing out 600,000 men and women a year with no plan in place for them when they come home. So the people that don't care, they don't care because it doesn't affect them. And the people that don't know, they don't know because no one's taught them. So and bottom line is there has to be more education. Mm-hmm. And let me, so I'm going I'm to get real personal with you for a minute, if you don't mind. I don't know if you did any background on me, but before you came on, but I used to be an elected official and I have been in law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. So, I and, saw that. and most of the time, my law enforcement experience has been in the correctional part, at least at the county level. Okay. And, and so part of, part of my thing when I was an elected official was that I was chosen because of my experience with the sheriff's department and the sheriff happened to be the vice chair of this nonprofit in Jackson, Mississippi that dealt with reentry. Right. So he mm-hmm. asked me and another brother who also had worked for him in the sheriff's department that was on the city council to serve on this board. And so we got to talking to people and you had people that were from the department of corrections in Mississippi on the board and all this stuff. And we got to talking and one thing, it was a simple thing that came to my attention that in Mississippi, when you got out of jail and I don't know how it is in Florida, but in Mississippi, when you got out of jail, they gave you X amount of dollars, Mm -hmm. uh, a bus ticket if you needed it, if you didn't have transportation to get out and maybe like a pair of jeans or something, some, you know, for the men, they gave them, I don't know what they did with the women, but with the men, they gave them like a pair of jeans or something like that. But the main thing was they gave them money and they would provide them transportation if they needed it. But the amount of money they would give them, I think was like $75 or something like that. And then they would have to report to their probation officer the following week. Mm-hmm. And the probation officer was going to turn around and take 30 of that $75 right back. All right. So what had been happening is that there was a provision where if you showed up and you said, well, I ain't got the 30, 30, $35, then I could, um, I could ask Violation. for a hardship. Oh, a hardship. Okay. I asked for a hardship. And then, I get put that off for 90 days, right? So I could report to the probation officer and all that for three months without having to pay. So that sounds pretty good. But what, what I said was with the next, during the next session, they were actually talking about raising the fee. (laughs) So what I did was I just said, look, I may introduce a bill that'll say you can put off your, you don't have to pay your first ever payment for a month. And if you do, if even after a month, if you still do it, you can still ask for a hardship, but -hmm. it'll give you at least 30 days to kind of get situated. Hopefully you can get a job and you can pay all this stuff. 
So initially the building passed, but they had something else that had the code section in there. So I was able to stick it in, in the legislation, uh, the actual legislation that was going to raise the fee. Of course, that, so the code section. So I was able to put the amendment in there. And so, and the only reason why it passed was because I was able to show the state of Mississippi that if you allow these people 30 days instead of 90, you okay. would save the state $7 million. <laughs> hmm. And so they were like, well, okay, all right, we'll vote for it. So that's the only reason why it got passed. And then, but <laughs> it's then they, a number thing. yeah, you when know, you talk but, about money, they listen. Yeah. And so, and it was just, but I got that idea from being around people that were concerned about the issue. And mm-hmm. most time people don't even care. There's a brother in, here in Georgia. He's no longer on the council, but he, you know, and they had to ban the box legislation and, trying to get that pushed. And so some cities like Jackson did it, but his brother in South Fulton, brand new city. One of the first things he got was a band of box uh, uh, ordinance passed. So if you apply for a job in the city of South Fulton, Georgia, they don't care, or at least you don't have to put that on your, on your thing that you, right. you've been convicted. And because it's so hard. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's so hard to even get an interview if you check that box. If you don't check the box, then you're more apt to get an interview. Right. And that's and that's the whole point, because it's like if you have the mm-hmm. skill set, because it doesn't make sense to me. And maybe you can help me understand it, <laughs> but it doesn't make sense to me to say that we're going to rehab people. We're going to train people how to do certain skills while they're incarcerated. And then yes. when they get out, they can't they can't get, get a job. I had a young mm-hmm. man and I know this is supposed to be your interview, but I, I got to tell the story because okay. the, there was this young man uh, when I worked at the County farm in, 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 in Hines County. And he was part of a program that trained these guys. I think there's actually a TV show out based on that kind of stuff where they had inmates putting out fires, like forest fires mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So he was part of that program in Mississippi. He got trained and all that. As soon as he got out, he was such a good firefighter, such a good trainee mm-hmm. and, and everything. When he got out, the city of Byram, Mississippi, found out that he lived in Byram, that he was he had gotten married while he was his last year. Because usually mm-hmm. when you get to the farm, you only got one year left, right? He got married. And the, he was situated in Byron with his, with his new wife and the chief of police, I mean, fire found out that he was living in Byron mm-hmm. and he said, you, you need to come to work like tomorrow. And, and so he's been working for the Byron fire department for all these years since he's been out, but it's very rare that you see that kind of commitment and that kind of dedication to helping people mm-hmm. besides what I said about banning the box and, and, you know, working with the probation system to make it easier for people to make their payments uh, and their restitution. What else policy wise can be done to uh, uh, help people transition back into society? Occupational licensing. Okay. 
having access to occupational licensing. In the state of Florida, I believe it's one out of seven jobs require an occupational license. 362 jobs require some type of license or certification. And if you are a felon, you do not have access to it. Now, there are times where you could fight it, fight it, fight it, go in front of a board. I had a friend of mine who went to massage therapy school, got his license. They wouldn't give him, no, got his, uh, you know, passed all his classes. They wouldn't give him a license to be a massage therapist. And so he had to go in front of the board and fight it tooth and nail. It took him about four years, but he was able to get his license. Now he owns a couple um, massage uh, envies. It's a franchise, a chain. Right. Mm -hmm. He owns a couple massage envies now as a returning citizen, but he had to go over, jump through hoops to be able to do that. And his crime had nothing to do with massaging people. Right. They're, they will allow you to pay money and take these classes and pass these classes, like, for example, a housing inspector. Um, Lester Young, I'm not, um, you might know Lester, Lester Young, he was like, hmm, I want to go and be a, um, a housing inspector, went, paid his money, took all his classes, went to go get his uh, license. They were like, no, you're a felon. You can't have this license. So with these barriers in place, those are the particular um, careers and jobs that will allow a lot of people to earn a living wage. And so many companies are trying to do second chance hiring and remove the barriers themselves from their companies so they can hire these individuals. And it's been a lot over the last couple since the pandemic because nobody wants to work, but we do. So with removing the occupational license barrier, as well as providing landlords some type of relief if anything should happen like landlords are afraid if they give someone that had a drug charge that one day the police will come and kick in the door or ransack the apartment or do whatever and if they had something in place they were like hey if this does happen if you are renting to a returning citizen we'll compensate you a thousand dollars or whatever have you and that is a bill that we're trying to get on the ballot in Florida as well as occupational licensing. And then we have certificates of rehabilitation as well. If returning citizens go through a hundred hours of um, classes to try to reintegrate back into society successfully, then they'll get a certificate of rehabilitation that they can show to employers and show to um, apartments or landlords and hopefully have a better chance of having those opportunities given to them. Are you including so, financial institutions in that? And, and, and yes, sir. Cause that's, that's a, that's a huge barrier. And the mm -hmm. other question, I, before I get back on that, the other question, does nursing fall under the occupational licensing? Yes, it does. Because there's a lot of people that want to go into nursing especially mm -hmm. ladies and you know it's like oh man i can't go to nursing school why well you know i went to i went to jail oh, oh no they can go to nursing school 
they just can't get a license. Yeah, see, in Florida, it's different. In Mississippi, they <laughs> so don't. It's, it's, they don't. Right. Mississippi, and I don't think in Georgia, I don't think they'll let you in the in the door at the school to go. But in in Florida, they'll take your money, but you can't practice. Mm, exactly. Okay. They'll okay. set you up for failure. Yeah. They'll absolutely set you up for failure. That's interesting. Did you know with the PPP loan that felons were automatically excluded? Right. They were a business owner or not? Right. And that and now they trying to now they trying to make more 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 felons through the PPP program. It seems like they're trying to arrest everybody. Uh, right. I got I got a friend going through that now. It's like really, so yeah, it's it's a mess. But wow, I think you know the the thing that the other thing, and I, I want to touch on this one real quick, is the um, the voting situation. Mm. So. In Florida, 65% of the citizens said, you know, once you serve your time outside of a murder or a sexual assault charge, mm-hmm. you can get your right to vote back. Amendment four, I yeah. remember. And so um, now we've got police going around arresting people who voted. For voter fraud. Yeah. Kind of, mm-hmm. kind of walk through as somebody that's down there in the middle of that. What exactly is happening with that? Why, why is DeSantis doing that? So I am a part of the FRRC Policy Council, and um, I don't know FRRC is Florida Restoration of Rights Coalition. We were the driving force behind Amendment Four being passed in Florida when. When the news hit of those were getting arrested, we set up a fund to pay their bill, to make sure that we pay their bill. DeSantis is trying to scare returning citizens because a buttload of us were able to vote and received our voting rights. So he did it right before the election to scare returning citizens or just as involved individuals to not go to the, to the, to the box and not vote so he could be reelected. And he did it strategically, if you, if you notice, because it was probably a month before the election when this task force to, for voter fraud um, was, was formed and people started getting arrested and it was in the news. Even the officers, if you saw the footage, even the officers were like, this is, yeah, war. And these individuals that have been out of prison, not been in trouble, getting arrested for something that they were told that they could do. Like they literally were told, hey, here's your voter registration card. You can vote now. Right. And that scared every person with a felony in Florida. And a lot of people didn't turn out to vote. A lot. And that was his strategic plan. Now, how many? When, how many? How many people were impacted? Because I the one number I saw was like when that passed, it was like one point four million people automatically mm-hmm. could vote at that particular point. Yes, it so one point four million. So we're talking that was that could have swayed the election if yes. we're, we're talking about one point because it's obviously more since then. That have been released and out. So, you know, we're talking a couple, at least a couple million people that basically were being intimidated not to vote. 
Mm -hmm. But this is the things that are not talked about are the individuals who voted twice for Trump and didn't get arrested and just got fined. And this was before all this voter registration fraud thing. But they were they were found to actually have done fraud. Like they legit did it. These individuals who were told they can vote and handed a voter registration card didn't knowingly commit voter fraud. But these other individuals knowingly committed voter fraud and did not end up in handcuffs. So is there anything that the Florida legislature is doing this session to clean up uh, that Restoration Act to, to tighten it up so there won't be any kind of loopholes? So whether it's DeSantis or any governor in the future can say, OK, well, I'm going to shut down so many votes. Uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot of talk. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing that has been brought to our attention with the Policy Council has come into play. We continue to try to push for, um, no, no, I did hear that they are trying to somehow create a system that talks to each other. From Tallahassee to the, the D, who does voter registration? The DMV, right? So they're trying to create a system that is supposed to talk and say, hey, yeah, they have fines and fees. They can't be a registered voter. Because when Amendment 4 was passed, they were like, well, fine. But if you have fines and fees, you still can't vote. And that's why it was a big thing with John Legend here in Florida with the FRC that we're paying. We've paid millions of dollars in fines for returning citizens so they can get their rights restored. It's like when they when when they saw that we were able to vote, now they put up another barrier. But you if you owe if you owe us money, you still can't vote. So they're trying to get a system that talks to one another to see if um, the individual has any fines and fees so that they can get them paid and so that they will be free and clear and able to vote. But that's still speculation and still a little bit of talk. Right. So, because in Mississippi, a legislator has to say, you came to me as a legislature, say, I want to get my voting rights back. We introduced a bill with your name only. It would have to list the charges that you were arrested for and indicted for and convicted for, actually. And then um, it would go to a committee, Judiciary B. It had to get out of committee and then get on the floor. And then two thirds of the body would have to vote in favor of it. Right. That's a lot. Yeah. And so basically <laughs> we would have like about 2000 names every year and maybe get like 10 out of the 2000. And so in the eight years that I served, I was able to get three people their voting rights back and everybody's like, woohoo. And I was like, yeah, but that's wow. crazy. That's crazy that we got to go through this process. So when I saw what was happening in Florida, I was like, yay, okay, cool. I was kind of surprised it was Florida, but they did it. Right? <laughs> and then and then I see DeSantis doing his thing. So it is what it is. But I, I just wanted to kind of touch on those points policy-wise. And, and basically, we've we kind of stretched our time. But, I, but this conversation is important. So I want to close out at least with 
one more question about a component. How important is mental health care in reforming the criminal justice system? And at least, and especially when it comes to recidivism and reentry. I did a study in about 60% of men and women that are in the prison system suffer with some type of mental illness. And because the prisons are overcrowded and there's mass incarceration, they are not getting the mental health treatment that they need. The, re the prison system moved from rehabilitation more than 40 years ago. And because they moved from rehabilitation, that is why the recidivism rate is so high. If individuals <clears throat> were getting counseling instead of prison, it would be so much better because I myself was diagnosed with impulse control disorder, which is a mental health um, issue. But because I was able to get the help that I needed, I'm able to control it. And I've been good for the last eight years or so. But <laughs> what goes undiagnosed cannot be treated. And that is what we, we need to diagnose individuals with whatever it is that they are suffering with so we can address the issue at the root and not try to address it at the, the branches or at the leaves because you can't do it that way. So mental health, addressing mental health in a correction institution would be a complete game changer and it would save a lot of lives and a lot of money as well. But people, individuals don't see it that way. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, I agree with that. I think, you know, the correction system, you know, law enforcement, we're, we're not supposed to be in the business of mental health. It's supposed to be mental health professionals. And one of my gripes when I was up there is that we would see every year when we had to make budget cuts, mental health was always on the list. And, mm -hmm. you know, so, like I said, I was in the legislature in the early 2000s. So now, you know, 20 some odd years later, we're reaping the whirlwind on that. And I think that's yeah. the reason why we're having a lot of the issues like you talk about homelessness and all this other stuff going on. The pandemic really exposed it because people were cooped up. And then once they got out, then all of a sudden, you know, really, what are we doing? Why are you really? You know, people were just doing things. Um, and and it's just it's just it's exacerbated to a major problem. And I just listened to your story. You talk when you talking about ICD and you were and it was getting back to your original point you had talked about earlier in the interview about enough. And so that's why I was uh oh, did I lose her? Probably did because I've been talking long. Um, I might have lost her. Um, but anyway, um, so I guess, guys, we're just going to um, catch you on the other side. All right, guys, I'm back. So Obviously, that was the the internet or the computer or whatever telling me I was talking too much, <laughs> and so uh, basically, I brought uh, 
Madam President back, uh, Ms. Jenkins back to uh, give her plug because we can't we can't do a show without having a guest and then plugging what they're doing, how people can get in touch with them, all that. So, Ms. Jenkins, the floor is all yours. Thank you so much. And Eric, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it so much. And this is a topic that so many other people are so many more people need to um, be aware of and the barriers that are faced with returning citizens. My website, um, you can reach me is Tanane, T-A-N-A-I-N-E, Jenkins.com. And I am also on um, every social media platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and most importantly, LinkedIn. We can connect on either platform. I am open to um, a conversation and to educate those who, who want to know about what's going on with uh, social justice. Well, and I appreciate you being out there and, and telling it. And like I was saying in the introduction, um, there needs to be a whole bunch of folks out there telling the story. So again, I'm honored that you came on. I'm glad we were able to fix the difficulties. So at least you could make your plug. And uh, uh, I, this is an open invitation. So I want you to come back on whenever you want to talk about this issue. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity again. All right, guys. And we'll catch you on the other side for real this time. <laughs> All right, guys. So let me let me just close out. Uh, I apologize for the technical difficulty, but at least you've got to hear uh, Ms. Jenkins make her case about the issues that are important. Um, and uh, got we're able to reconnect so that she could tell you how to get in touch with her. Um, I also want to uh, thank Ms. Ostriker for. Uh, coming on and telling her story as well, dealing with uh, Congressman Santos. Hopefully y'all learned something out of that. But since this, this episode is coming out during the King holiday, uh, I have to make an observation. And there's been a lot of talk with people there's been a lot of chatter on social media about who can quote Dr. King and who cannot. And I get it. Um, so the only thing I'm going to quote is the Deborah Cox song. We can't be friends, right? Because it's gotten to that point y'all where uh, people especially in the African-American community, even if they don't agree with each other on issues, have been pretty adamant about folks that they view as espousing policies and actions that are counterintuitive to what Dr. King pushed for. Uh, a lot of people are upset and we've used this term a lot and there was actually a, a young man that had a painting that addressed it uh, 
you know, whitewashing or mythologizing Dr. King in a way where he's palpable to the masses instead of being who he was at that time. Um, And folks are upset about that. So let me just say this to people. I'm not going to tell you whether you can quote Dr. King or not. I'm just going to ask you that at some point in time, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, which side of the tracks that you are on, which side of any debate that you are on, that we start learning how to resolve conflict instead of inflate conflict. I think at some point, one of the things that I am doing personally, I started this last year and plan on finishing it this year, is the NV365 training that the King Center puts out uh, that tries to explain the philosophy, well, not tries, they explain the philosophy of nonviolence through the prism of Dr. King, right? And how he went about dealing with conflict and coming to resolution and how we can use the more of us that learn that skill, uh, we can do things to resolve conflicts nonviolently and more amenably. You know, and there are some people just like, well, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. Okay, fine, then do what you got to do. But Dr. King was against that. He, like I said, I'm not going to say a quote, but you know what he said about that. That's, that's antithetical to what he was about. What we have to do is figure out a way in this society where people can behind the technology of their phone or their iPad or their computer can say hateful things, can be vitriolic, can uh, be invidious in everything that they set out to say and do. Navigate through all that and still find a way to get to a solution. Um, and, and for those folks who are telling folks not to say things, at least listen to those folks if they, whether they're they're not quoting black leaders or not, but if they are willing to at least have a dialogue to come to a solution, let's open our ears to hear it and see what is being offered. And if it's not anything worth being offered, or if it's, something that can be a teachable moment. Let's make that happen. I think, you know, to just basically say, you better not say that, or you better not do this. That makes us no better than the people that are really trying to oppress us. I get it. I'm mad. I'm always mad. And I, and I'm always disappointed, but On this day and throughout this year, we need to, we need to figure out a way 
to deal with this stuff as as intelligent human beings and not as combatants all the time. I know it's a tall thing to ask for, even for me. And I have a platform where, you know, and I've used it to just go off, right? It's, it's, it's hard, but that's why it's called discipline because it has to be taught and it has to be trained and you have to, you have to acquire that skill. So if I'm admonishing myself, then I feel like everybody needs to admonish and check themselves and not be hostile, but be holistic, if that makes sense. Until next time.